Welcome to the Daily Bible Podcast, a show intended to help you get more out of your everyday time in the Word. This is a ministry of Compass Bible Church in North Texas, and if you'd like to join along with our daily Bible reading program, you can do so by going to compassntx.org and clicking on the Daily Bible Reading tab. Thanks for joining in for today's episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Hey there, faithful podcast listeners. Welcome to another episode. You did it again. Well done. And it may be, it's not our last one. I said yesterday, one more. One last time. No. One last podcast. No. We're going to keep going. Lord willing, we're going to keep going. As long as we can do this, man. I'm excited. This has been such a benefit to me. Yeah. And I think you would say the same, Pastor PJ. And I, I've heard from several of our people that this has been a benefit to them too. So I'm encouraged that y'all are encouraged. Yep. And we're going to keep doing this. So help us, God. Yep. And Christmas is now less than three weeks away. Crazy. What'd you buy me? I bought you a Tesla Cybertruck. Really? Yeah. The $100,000 cool. one. Dude, I wish I you should have surprised me. No, well, I mean, you asked. What am I supposed to do? Lie? I'm not going to be surprised anymore. <laughs> I'm really disappointed. <laughs> really disappointed. Uh, I, I hope it came with a free one because, man, that would be awesome. I, dude, have you seen that Cybertruck stuff? It was racing against a, a, a Porsche 911. I haven't seen that video yet. It's racing against it's a Porsche 911. Yeah. I don't know how, how far it is, but it, it it beats it. Surprise, surprise. Well, I watched Marquez Brownlee's review and he was driving it and he punched the accelerator and he like visibly on YouTube, like you could tell it shocked him. Yeah. He was, yeah. I mean, I, I'll take one. I will, yeah. I will take one. Well, I'll let you drive the one that you bought me. Okay. Yeah. Occasionally. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hey, let's get into the uh, Bible. Okay. Daniel better, chapter five. Better than a Cybertruck. Yeah, for sure. All right, Daniel chapter five. We need to do some legwork here. So uh, come with us as we talk about some different time uh, elements here. So we are now in 539 BC. This is going to be the fall of Babylon. This is when Babylon falls to Medo-Persia, really the Persian empire that it had uh, uh, subsumed some of the the Median empire as well. So you have Medo-Persia, the Medo-Persian empire. Anyways, 539 BC, this is the fall of Babylon that we're about to read about in chapter five. You've got a different ruler on the throne. Now you uh, notice the first two words there of chapter five in our ESV is King Belshazzar. Well, the the problem is... um, Belshazzar was not technically the king during this time. He was a sort of king. He was a vice regent or a co-regent at this time. So, Crown prince. Here's what's happened. If you back all the way up, you've got uh, you've got King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've left behind. Um, king Nebuchadnezzar has been dead now for some time. And uh, after King Nebuchadnezzar, you had a, another king come to take the throne in Babylon there named Evil Merodach, uh, which is a horrible name for a human being. He didn't know, bro. He didn't. He didn't know. But still, horrible name. I mean, how would you like to be known by that? So that's around 560, 562, somewhere in that range, Evil Merodach becomes king. After Evil Merodach becomes king, you have the next king come on the throne, who is a guy named Nabonidus. Nabonidus, N-A-B-O-N-I-D-U-S. That's around 555 BC. He then is the the king or the ruler, but because he didn't often spend a lot of time in Babylon there, he installed uh, one of his descendants here in his offspring in Belshazzar to be the co-regent or vice-regent with Nabonidus there. So we're fast-forwarded all the way to 539 BC. This is the eve of the fall of Babylon. And what you have here is you have Belshazzar, who is the king who rules as uh, as the, the co-regent or vice-regent along with Nabonidus in the Babylonian Empire. 
Okay, so that's where we're at as chapter five opens up. All right, I'm tracking. Awesome. Well, chapter five does open up. Belshazzar, he's throwing a party and alcohol's involved and a lot of alcohol is involved. And in the midst of this, he decides, you know what? I think it's going to be funny. Let's go get the vessels from the, the Jerusalem temple and let's bring those out. And these vessels that this one once a proud nation Israel that they use to worship their God, we're going to use it. We're going to toast to the gods of silver and gold and wood. So they're, they're talking about blasphemy. This is blasphemy of the, the highest order here. I mean, they are using instruments made to use to, to worship God. They're using them to worship idols and false gods and to carouse and drink and, and all of these things. Well, God is not a God who will be mocked. And sometimes that is delayed. Romans 2.5 says that, that the, the wicked in the world right now are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment. Other times, God shows up right on the scene and uh, and deals with things. And that's what we have here. The hand shows up and begins writing on the wall, and it says the king's color changed. I mean, he just goes pale. He can't read it, doesn't know what it says, but he knows it's not good. And his knees knock together. I like his, that in yeah. verse 6. Yeah, his, yeah, seriously. Um, and and nobody knows what it says, and here comes the queen, and the queen thinks she's helping because she's like, hey, there's this guy in whom is the spirit of the gods. Now, that has been used multiple times for Daniel so far in the book, and maybe you flagged that and noticed that, and they've, you've thought, oh, look at that. They knew the Holy Spirit lived within Daniel. No, that's not what they're saying there. Remember, these are pagan people with a polytheistic understanding of God and the spirit of the gods. They're just simply recognizing this is something beyond human understanding that enables him to do what he does. So they call in Daniel. Daniel says to the king, all right, listen, I'll interpret it. And then he just lambasts the king before he gets to the interpretation. He says, look, you knew what happened to, and he calls Nebuchadnezzar his father. Now, I just said there's been quite a few years here, and another king named Evil Merodach reigned prior to this. This is not so much Nebuchadnezzar's son as probably grandson at this point, uh, per- perhaps even great-grandson. Um, and it, here, the, the reference to father is just your, your family member in, in close proximity. And he's saying to him, you should have known about these things. In fact, you do know about these things. You know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. That's going all the way back to the events of chapter four that we just left off. Seems close to us in proximity. It was years, decades in, in real time in the unfolding of these things. And he says, and, and you didn't learn from these things. You still exalted yourself against the God of heaven. And now he's humbling you. Here's what it says. And the translation, Pastor Rod, you pronounced it right before we went live. Why don't you do that again? <laughs> mene, mene, tekel, parson. Parson. Yeah. Yeah. And it means? Parson Brown. It's like that Christmas song. We'll pretend that he yes. is Parson Brown. That's where, that, that's where this came that's from. That's exactly it. That's not it. Uh, something about weighed and found wanting. Yeah, you've been weighed, measured, and found wanting. Yeah, that's the one measured. Yeah, you uh, you, you don't measure up to God's standard, and you're gonna you're gonna suffer now. And uh, he said that God has numbered the days of your kingdom. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, you want to know that that number one. In fact, less than one mm-hmm. hours. Um, because here's what's crazy, and this is something that's not recorded in the text, but history records it for us. At this very moment, as this party is happening, the see. The Medo-Persian Empire had laid siege to Babylon on the outside of the city walls here, but the Babylonians were so proud of their security and so confident in their walls to defend them that they they were inside the city in the palace, moved, and they they were celebrating, they were partying, they didn't think anything could happen. The Persian authorities, they there was a river that went under the the walls in Babylon there, and so the Persian authorities went out and they went down river a ways and they built a dam to dry up the water. And they got into the city through the the tunnel that was normally inaccessible because of this river that went through. And so they diverted the water, they dammed up the water, they gained access, and they're, as this is unfolding, marching their way through the city to the palace to be able to take out 
the the king and install their king in his place. So crazy events in chapter five, but uh, at the the end of it, it says there that this guy Darius takes the throne, and we'll touch on him in just a minute. Anything else on chapter five, PR? No, I point back to our theme here. God is sovereignly overseeing the rising and the falling of nations and kings, even in ways that are really surprising. That, that, that kind of a, that approach, that innovative way to get in the city, when God decrees something, it, it's not going to not happen. It, right. it will certainly take place. So there you go. Sovereignty right. again. Yeah. So chapter six opens up with this guy, Darius or Darius, depending on on, uh, your pronunciation there. And he is the one that comes in. But here's the problem that we run into, okay? Interpretive problem, red flag for some people. The, The king of Persia at the time was a guy named Cyrus. So there is no record of... Darius of a king Darius of a, of a historical figure at this time of in the Persian Empire media or even the Median Empire um, named Darius so there's been a couple of suggestion suggestions there one has said uh, maybe Darius was the the median ruler and remember I said that that Persia had kind of subsumed media in its own empire so it's possible that this was Darius the Mede and, and Darius was the the median arm of the empire maybe um, others have said, well, maybe he's a governor that Cyrus installed to, to govern this area. There's a, a governor with a particular name that people have suggested there. Again, possibly uh, the others have suggested Darius could be a title that there are at least five different times that you can point to a Darius in history. And so they're wondering maybe this was a title for a king or a ruler. And this could have been Cyrus in view the whole time with Darius as the title for him. Either way, this does not present problems for us to say, oh no, this is historical inaccuracy. Much like we saw with Belshazzar, it was not uncommon for there to be a vice regent or a co-regent or a governor installed to rule on behalf of someone else, or this could be Cyrus himself. And then with the common vernacular, it's not inaccurate to say that he was king. Right. Uh, it's it's not as precise as we use language today, but again, we're using with we're using modern conventional standards and we're trying to say, okay, let's shove that into the the way that the ancients used to think and to understand. They should have done things our way. They should have done things our way. Yeah, that, they could have been better. But the reality is that the, no one would have raised an eyebrow at this and said, well, okay, I guess the Bible's not true anymore. They're being inaccurate. They're just being loosey-goosey with terms and titles. That's not the case. Right. This would have been perfectly acceptable. Right. So Darius decides he's going to set up these satraps and uh, each satrap is going to have a satrapy. And that's going to be a region that they're going to oversee. They're going to protect that area. They're going to collect taxes on behalf of the king from that area. Daniel happens to be one of these. There's 120 of them. And Daniel does things exceedingly well and gets the notice of the king. The king is planning to set Daniel over the entire kingdom. He's going to make him second in charge. I mean, think back to Joseph and Pharaoh, right? Kind of that level of trust being offered to to Daniel there. And this is why? Because of God's favor upon Daniel. Um, And so Daniel's in line for that. The, the rest of the satraps, the rest of the, the, the people there, they don't like this. Uh, they're thinking, why is this Jew? Why is this Israelite getting this honor? So they set out to try to find something uh, wrong with Daniel. And, and I love Daniel's integrity. I love that they look for something just about his character that they could bring and say, look, you don't want this guy leading and they can't find anything. They checked his browser. They checked his closet. They checked his GPS, his closet, and they couldn't find it. I mean, I, I, think, I think that's amazing. And that, that kind of integrity is such a rarity. Totally. It's such a rarity. Yeah. But man, that's the kind of integrity we should have. Yeah. And I love their conclusion. And would this be said of us? The only way we're going to find anything wrong with him is if we find it on, in regards to his God. They, they have to say the, the one thing that we know that he will always be consistent in is his relationship with God. So maybe we can figure out a way 
to hold that against him or to work uh, to make that work against him. That's what they do. They go to the king and they say, hey, we want you to sign an order that says only uh, people can only worship you. Now, the king doesn't know what's really going on, but he thinks that sounds pretty swell. So he signs the order. It says that the order of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. Um, There were examples in in history of where that wasn't necessarily the case, where there were clauses and out clauses and exceptions to rules. But it seems here that they they took this pretty seriously because that's what happens. So they they go and they find Daniel, it says, doing exactly what he had done before. And that's, again, integrity, right? Daniel knew the order had been signed and goes back and does what he had, had done before. That is integrity in action. They find him, they charge him, they bring him to the king. The king's distraught, doesn't want to kill Daniel, likes Daniel, probably because Daniel benefits his kingdom. Uh, remember the Abrahamic covenant, I will bless those who bless you. And so I think there's something there probably that this is somewhat self-interest from the king, but he is distraught. He even tells Daniel, look, I, I pray that your God is going to be able to save you from the lion's den. And he stays up all night fasting and hoping and, and thinking maybe this God is going to be able to save Daniel. That says as much about Daniel as it does about God. It says that this king knew something about the history of how Daniel had had survived different situations and his friends had, and he knows enough about the God of Israel to think, if anybody can do this, maybe this God can do this. Goes back to the lion's den in the morning. I love the scene. Has the, the lid pulled back, and he's yelling into this pit, Daniel, are you okay? Imagine being somebody around there watching the king do this. Nobody ever survived the lion's den. These lions were starved so that they'd be ready to kill whatever was thrown in the, the pit. And we know what happens with the, the those that charged against Daniel. Mm-hmm. They're devoured before they even hit the bottom. So these were hungry lions. This is a God thing. God preserves him. God delivers him. Why? Because of his integrity. So what do we make of this then for 2023? Uh, whether we're students in a, in a high school, a junior high, whether we're employees at a workplace, that's a Babylon of sorts. What are our takeaways here? Similar to what we talked about, previously with the the Rakshak and Benny situation in the statue. I mean, a refusal to compromise. God can come through. God can reward our faithfulness. God will reward our integrity. And if we think that God's going to reward our compromise more than he would our integrity, then, man, we're fooling ourselves. But I think it's important for us to go back, if I can, back to chapter three. Similarly here, like, what if Daniel was killed? What if the, the three were burned alive in that, that furnace. We, we talked about this, in fact, this past Sunday. What if God doesn't come through the way that we hope he will? What if we obey and we lose our job? What if we are faithful and we get cancer? What if we fulfill our job as a husband or a wife? We love our, our wives like Christ loved the church, not perfectly, but as best as we can. Or as a wife, man, we're submitting to our husband as to the Lord. Again, not perfectly, but as best we can. And our spouse cheats on us and walks away. What if our kids never come to Christ? These are questions we have to reconcile ahead of time to say, are we still willing to trust God in the midst of that? Are we still willing to say, God, you are still enough for me, even if what I hope to happen doesn't happen? In other words, am I obeying contingent on what I want God to do? Or am I obeying because God is God and it's the right thing to do? And I think in Daniel and Rakshak and Benny, I think you see them obey because God is God and it's the right thing to do. It's important for us to realize that the larger obedience that we hope to render to God in those big seasons of our lives, those really difficult, hairy, the, the traumatic situations that we encounter, really depend upon uh, our practicing of integrity and obedience in the smaller ways, day by day. We kind of make joke about about Daniel's browser history and, and you know, the what's in his closet. You were saying, you know, did, did Daniel have sin in his life? Well, certainly he did. But the larger overarching tone of his life, as we were talking about yesterday in the gospel, uh, the, the letter of John, 
He was a man who did not practice sinning. He practiced righteousness. And so if we can encourage you uh, as we think about living in Babylon, practice righteousness right now in the small ways. You're not going to magically become a super Christian when everything hits the fan. Practice it. Be faithful in the small ways right now when it's comparatively easier than when it would be if things were really difficult. Yeah, it's why in the military they have you make your bed every single morning because it's discipline in the small things leads to discipline in the big things. Um, Yeah, how you do anything is how you do everything, as someone said. Right, right. First John 4. Speaking of First John. First John 4, test the spirits. Again, this is written combating some false teaching. There were false teachers around, and he says many have gone out into the world, and we need to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. What does that mean to test the spirits? Well, the idea here is that there are, are spirits. The, the Holy Spirit is behind solid and sound teaching, but there are, are evil spirits behind false teaching and false prophets and false teachers. And so that's why we are testing the spirits to see if they are from God. And uh, in one of the, the the litmus tests here for this particular group of Christians, because remember, they were facing people saying Jesus didn't have a fleshly body because fleshly bodies are evil, was that they, he said here, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Okay. Th- that seems particularly narrow when we think about the, the breadth of the scope of biblical teaching. That's a reminder to us that scripture was written for all time, but also for a particular time. And so John was writing to a particular group facing false teachers that were saying Jesus never came in the flesh. That's, that's, a, 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 that's heresy to suggest that because the flesh is evil. John's saying, we need to test the spirits. One way we know is, hey, if they're going to confess that he came in the flesh, he actually did. That's a good sign that this is a good teacher. Right. And I think that if we can apply it more broadly to our situation here, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to test the spirits. What's the spirit of their teaching? What's the spirit of their doctrine? Good Bible teachers, uh, those who are healthy and helpful, are going to be those people who, by and large, will be citing a lot of Scripture and using Scripture as the foundation or the basis by which they teach. Yeah. When you're looking for faithful teachers, that's what you want. The spirit of it is Jesus is Lord. We live for his honor, his glory. And here's where we see that in the Bible. You yeah. find that, you find a good church, typically. Yeah, 100%. Well, it goes on in the rest of the chapter to talk more about love and loving other people, loving one another because of God is love. Love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And again, this is more of an overflow into the litmus test of do we love God? Well, if we love God, we're going to love other people because we can't truly love God if we don't have love for other people. And this is just a good reminder to us, church, um, of, of our call as fellow believers within the body of Christ, that we need to be a church characterized by love because the God that we profess to know is a God of love. And as we get to know him more, uh, uh, an evidence of that is how we love other people in our lives. And it's so important that John will say that people will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another, or whether you love one another. Yeah. This is a, a, a an issue of essential importance. You cannot be a Christian apart from having love for God that results in love for people. Yeah. I remember when I read this years ago, I was I was stunned just thinking, I don't, I don't know if I love people that way. Mm. I think a Christian's going to read this and there probably will be a sense of conviction. Do I love people the way I should? Do I love God the way I should? Of course, the answer is no. But a Christian's not going to respond with despondency and say, well, I guess then that's it. I'm going to just walk away. A Christian's going to say, no, Lord, I need to grow in this. Right. Help me. I desperately feel my need to love you and to love others better. And that's that's a good thing, Christian. If you're convicted, that's good. The Spirit's yeah. working on you. No one loves, loves God the way they should. No one loves others the way they should. But you can say, okay, I know this is so essential and critical. I have to grow in this. And you can. By His Spirit, through his, uh, by his grace, through his spirit, you can and you will. So let's encourage you to pursue a loving relationship with God and with others. Amen.
Amen. And one thing, just a helpful interpretive note there. In verse 18, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment. What's he talking about there? He's talking about our relationship with God. If we love God, there's a sense in which we no longer fear him as our judge. We no longer fear his wrath because his wrath has been poured out on Christ. There's a fear of God that we do have that does produce obedience in our lives as believers. That That uh, is that respect and that reverence for him and and that fear that we see in the warning passages in Hebrews that just causes us to faithfully obey him and want to obey him. But but if you look at God and, and you're afraid of him as as though he would he would strike you dead at any moment. That's evidence that you don't really understand God's love for you because perfect love, he says there, casts out fear. Which is another incentive why you should seek to understand God's love for you and, and to respond in love for him and let that overflow in love for others. When that, when that love is working the way it should, it can't help but create that sense of affection, safety, uh, that sense of, I don't know, uh, extravagance. Like, I want to love people well. Man, I can't believe I'm loved this way. Let me love other people in response. That's when it's working well. Pursue that. Yeah. Well, again, happy Tuesday, guys. Yeah. Good luck Tuesday. Right. We'll we'll catch you on Wednesday. See you then. Peace. Bye. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. We hope and pray this has been a blessing to you and your time in the Word. If it has, if you would subscribe to this podcast, leave a like, leave a comment, and share it with some friends and family, that would be awesome. If you need more information about Compass Bible Church here in North Texas, you can go to compassntx.org. Again, that's compassntx.org. And we'll be back with you tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast.